Welcome to It Could Be Said. My name is All Calling. I'm joined as always by the one, the only, Dr. Luke Middup. How are you today, Luke? I'm very well, thanks. Well, I sound better than your good self. You sound very sort of gravelly and very white-esque. I prefer to think I have Phoebe's sexy, sexy voice when she has a cold. <laughs> yeah, so Will has been poorly. I have been so poorly. I have not drank alcohol since Tuesday. My God, he's a uh, death door. He's a death door. Let's look. I'm literally about to take my first sip of alcohol since Tuesday. Actually, even even more strikingly, I haven't had a drink of Coke since Thursday, which I'm again about to rectify. Where are the other two? <laughs> you know what? Don't tell me I'm still on this fucking island. <laughs> You know what the really striking thing actually is? What? I've been, I've been, for like the past two years, I've been having quite wild dreams. And particularly since I stopped drinking so much Coke, they've just gone. Do you think that's what was keeping Donald Trump up at night? Well, well, caffeine does do that to you. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I think, I think, I think hopefully this will be an instructive uh, bout of cold. That will um, <laughs> that will tell me to like maybe maybe stop maybe stop uh, what is it uh, tearing tearing the ass out of it yeah. um, to, to, quite as much as I was but yeah, oh no it's been, it's been a horrible like I often get throat colds but what I'm not used to is fevers shivers chills body aches I've I've I really have had like. At the moment, I've got a sore throat and a runny nose, and and, and like a, a bit of a phlegmy cough. But like, Are you sure, I, it wasn't the dreaded COVID. I've taken two natural flow tests, and they both came back negative. Okay, I I am a frontline NHS staff member, so I still get free ones. <laughs> Note to the listeners: Will is not a frontline member of NHS staff. They just think he is. I I, I was in, I was in scope for V God. <laughs> okay, actually, we should we should apologise to the, the listeners because it's been a while since we did a podcast. That's a combination of you gallivanting off to Canada to see family, um, Simon having a life and a significant other, and me being lazy. Well, well, also to be fair, like you, you, you can't do the podcast by yourself because only I know how to work the Zoom machine. <laughs> This is this is this is true. This is true, listeners. Um, we should say about my Canadian holiday. I I had taken advice about what the weather was going to be like from a six-year-old, a six-year-old who is British, um, <laughs> um, and was very surprised when I got to Canada, and it was absolutely fucking freezing. You didn't even take a proper coat. Did you? I did not take a coat. I did not take socks. Um, I did not take shoes that um, have any grip to them. Um, um, I mean, I would have been in serious trouble if it wasn't for the fact that the weather got even worse. And even if I had have prepared properly, it really wouldn't have been practical to go out very, very much. So like, you just ended up spending two weeks. Playing, playing Beyblades and watching Teen Titans. Yeah, just over one week. Yeah, playing playing the Beyblade games that William likes. Playing video games. 
and then watching cartoons. Um, yeah. It's, you know, there, there are worse ways to spend 10 days. Um, we did go and see Sonic 2, um, which I think, which is one of these really interesting cultural artifacts um, that shows the, the kind of benefit of um, these enduring franchises. Because for me, it's very nostalgic. It's like I'm picking the bits out of, of games I played when, you know, I was around William's age, a bit older. But obviously for William, this is just this is just a character he follows that he likes. He likes the cartoons. He likes the newer games. And the end of it, you know, spoilers, any Sonic fans listening, these spoiler the the end like the kind of Marvel's Marvel style post credit tease is um, sh- the, the debut of Shadow in the films, and this always it always cracks William up, cracks up, infuriates him depending on his mood. That I don't know who Shadow is because like Shadows is like the evil Sonic character. <laughs> but it's completely after I stopped playing Sonic games. <laughs> um, and so, like, you know, I remember we were in a film and, like, we're having this discussion about, um, I, I don't know who Shadow is, William. What about Silver? No, I don't know who Silver is, William. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, and, yeah, uh, and our other host, Simon Alvey, is at a wedding, not his own, somebody else's, but yeah, he's at a wedding. Yeah, so he was, he was, he was doing his uh, Michael Portillo. No, he's he's um, his pitch to be the new Michael Portillo on Twitter yesterday. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. Going through what the various different cities meant to him as he uh, and also, as he and passed also, through, and also generally complaining about trains. <laughs> Actually, you know, you know what, but you know what, I hope he, hopefully he doesn't listen to this podcast. Because we really should get him a bi-decker guide at some point. <laughs> that would be good. That would be good. Yeah. Uh, or, or, or a nice purple jacket. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a nice pair of chinos. <laughs> I, um, I, I had the, um, I had a very weird experience actually last Sunday of using National Express. And it working really well. National Express. You can't say National Express without not humming that song. What song? The Divine Comedy. You know, the National Express song. Oh, yeah. I remember that song. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I don't, maybe it's because I use National Express so much. I just, yeah, I don't associate it with that. But um, yeah, I, I got my. Uh, coach from London at quarter five on, on a Sunday evening okay. and it got back to Birmingham within four hours like it was meant to okay so can't, can't, can't grumble at that so um, we're, really do, we're really doing it we're really doing a double header this week of Ukraine and upcoming local elections those two things are equally important yes i.e. Simon's not around to help will outvote Luke so Luke gets, <laughs> to pick, Luke gets to pick what we talk about. So things go boom and apology. I'm in my element. Yes, uh, this, this may be the rare, the, 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 the rare podcast where Luke talks more and I cough more. 
<laughs> Don't jinx it. <laughs> so, Luke, how, how does the war in Ukraine go? Uh, well, it, it depends on what point of view you want to look at it. <clears throat> if you're Russian, the war in Ukraine continues to go not all that well. If you're Ukrainian, it's going about as well as a, it's going about as well as a war can can go. Although, obviously, having said that, it's still inflicting massive economic and human, uh, you know, human um, casualties on Ukraine, and it and it will continue to do so. I think the the one thing that kind of has been resolved in the last few weeks is this war is not going to end anytime soon. It will drag on through at least the upcoming summer. Um, and that's going to have major economic effects, not just for Ukraine and Russia, but for the world at large, as I think we spoke about in the, the previous podcast. Um, probably the single biggest event since we last spoke is the um, Ukrainian sinking of the Russian cruiser Moskva. Uh, which is actually really weird for me because one of the things I do focus on in my teaching is sea power, is is combat at sea, and I can remember reading, I can remember, I I've read old papers back published in the early 1980s when the Slava class, which is the class of ship that the Moskva belonged to, was first launched, um, saying that these ships are not well designed to defend themselves. So the purpose of a Slavikras cruiser is to provide command and control for larger fleets, larger bodies of ships, and to provide sort of air defense for a fleet. And what it's been doing in Ukraine is projecting that air defense over a large part of the Crimea and southern Ukraine. And while the Slavikras was well equipped to do that, the weakness that was identified even back in the early 80s when it was originally launched is it's very good at protecting other ships from air attack, but it's not very strong when it comes to point defense, i.e. protecting itself. Um, and as I say, the Slava class is a very old ship. Um, the Moskva was launched the same year I was born, 1983. It was completely overhauled and refitted in the year 2000, and it should have been refitted again in 2016, but it wasn't for budgetary reasons. So, so, uh, and that tells, a, you quite, that tells you quite a lot. So we needed a yacht in Cyprus, right? Yeah, somebody needed a yacht in Cyprus. Um, now, the Ukrainians have their own version of this, have their own version of the ship. They've not been able to operate it for years because it's too badly rusted and corroded, but the and the Slava class itself was largely manufactured in the Ukrainian shipyards in Nikolaev. Um, so the Ukrainian, so you know, because I watched it last night to quote Spock from the Wrath of Khan, they knew exactly where to hit us. And what's really impressive, it's either impressive or lucky. I've not heard anybody come down firmly one side or the other is that the Ukrainian missile that hit the Moskva hit it at exactly its weakest point, which is its engine, or the weakest point of any ship, which is its engineering spaces, which meant that power... Near the the warp core, right? Yeah, which basically means that the power, which basically means that the power for all the ship's firefighting equipment basically was destroyed almost immediately. 
Um, and also, it's a perennial weakness of Russian ship design, of Soviet ship design, I should say, that the main damage control center is right next to the engine room, uh, which saves on, well, basically, it saves on space and it, it, it's an efficient way of generating power. But it does mean that if the engineering space is struck, you've basically lost all the ability to control damage in the ship. Um, the Star Trek seems, don't make that, that mistake. To, pardon? Star Trek doesn't make that mistake. No, Star Trek doesn't make that mistake. I don't think we ever see a damage control point on the Enterprise. It's a, that's, a, that's a design flaw. Wouldn't that be uh, just be? Wouldn't that just be part of the bridge commands? I suppose it would be. Yeah. Um, I suppose they, no. Actually, no. Tell a lie. Maybe it is in engineering because engineering does have its own command center. Yeah, I, su- I suppose. In, in new in new generation, it does. Any next generation, it does. Anyway. Yeah. So. Well, another thing that's interesting about this is the net the missile that the Ukrainians used um, was one of their own designs. What's called it's what's called a Neptune surface to surface missile, and this this actually says something quite important. Ukraine inherited quite a lot of the Soviet Union's military industrial complex, particularly when it came to like the design bureaus and manufacture of missiles, particularly short and medium-range missiles. So Kharkiv, uh, Kharkiv, for example, used to be a major used to be a major supplier of that kind of like aeronautical equipment to um, the Soviet Air, the Red Air Force. Um, you know, Kiev had a large tank has you know had a large tank factory. Nikolaev was one of the major construction yards for the Soviet Navy. Um, so ever since the ever since the early nineties, the Ukrainians have actually managed to keep most of that infrastructure intact. And ironically, up until two thousand and fourteen, one of Ukraine's major export trades was selling this equipment back to the Russian Federation to maintain its own um, stocks of Soviet-era weapons and exporting it around the world. Now, the Neptune is not Soviet tech. This has been developed over the last. This has been developed over the last decade, primarily for export. It has to be said, and it only entered service in two thousand and nineteen. The, the Ukrainians only have one experimental battery of these things. But I've read a lot of the. Te- I mean, I'm not an engineer, but I try to sort of educate myself by reading as much of the technical literature as I can get my hands on, and it's and it sounds like actually. This was a this was a weapon system that not only Ukraine's traditional sort of customers in the developing world were interested in. This was something that actually a lot of European countries seem to have been interested in buying because it's it seems to be a very it seems to be a very lightweight, um, low altitude surface to surface missile. Um, now, how many the Ukrainians have got left of these things is an open question. But it goes to show again that, like Ukraine isn't, you know, this is not, this is not Iraq or Afghanistan. This is not Iraq or Af- Afghanistan or Chechnya. Um, you know, Ukraine has a significant, uh, has a significant conventional army, and it has the technical expertise um, to maintain a conventional army in the field, potentially for a very long time. I think I think it's worth saying, with a comparison to Iraq, 
if say the Americans had tried to evade Iraq in ninety one, yes, the Iraqis would have probably have put up a better fight. It's because they became so degraded, and like even more so in nineteen eighty one, yeah, before the Iraq around. Yeah, no, nineteen eighty one is a better one because nineteen ninety one, the Iraqi army was in shambles. Um, I mean, it, it mutinied. But um, but but yeah, but by by after the Iraq Iran War, after. Um, over a decade of sanctions, the the, Iraq, the Iraqi state had been hollowed out. Whereas you've had the inverse with Ukraine in the sense of they've been kind of they have been doing capacity building since 2014. Yeah, and they, they had they had capacity to build, but that's yeah. important. Thing. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, this is one of the. I always feel this is people are too quick to, to dismiss this point from the Russians. Um, Ukraine clearly was more integrated in, into the core Soviet Union, cough, cough, Russia, cough, cough, um, than other parts of the Soviet Union, um, for all sorts of reasons, yeah. Um, and that that is part of the reason why the Russians are so annoyed when Ukraine tries to assert its independence. Yeah, um, but just, I've got to say, it also has these interesting echoes in the capacities that Ukraine inherited. Yeah, I was going to say it was it was just really so it was really interesting and weird to think back on like all those papers that I read, <laughs> like from the early and mid nineteen eighties, saying that this class of ship was going to have exactly exactly this problem. Well, at least some <laughs> of the papers were right, eh? Yeah, the whilst it, the whilst it could project power out over a fleet and defend like over defend a large area from air attack. If you got if you got if you got inside if you got inside its long range radar, if you got inside its longer range air defense systems, it wasn't well equipped for like immediate self defense, what's referred to in the literature as point defense. Um, the other thing to say is that. Um, the Russian offensive in the Donbass is making grindingly slow. Well, actually, program. before we get before we get to that, we Sorry. should talk about the Battle of Kiev because we we the Battle of Kiev is over. Yeah, and I and it wasn't over when we last did a podcast. I think it was. Okay. Well, when we last spoke about it. Okay. So do you want to just talk about talk about what happened and also? Should the Russians have not have bothered trying to go to Kiev in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's now beyond, uh, I think it's now beyond question that the Russians were massively, were massively overextended. I think it's also, I mean, we have talked about this, but it's worth making this point over and over again. What the Russians planned was the occupation of Ukraine, not the contested invasion of Ukraine. Um, and th- this was a plan drawn up with politics in mind rather than with like tactical and operational um, efficiency in mind. The pro- the problem the problem that the Russians have got is they have far too little they have far too little infantry trying to occupy far too wide of an area. And that's true even now they've shifted focus to the east and south of Ukraine. That has made the problem slightly less acute, but it hasn't resolved it. Um and as we'll talk about in a minute, the imbalance in firepower between Ukraine and Russia is rapidly being corrected. Um, so, yeah. 
So I mean, really, the the Russians have not got the Russians have not got a lot of good options left open to them at this point. They can either massively escalate by calling up reservists, and the thing is, you can't immediately send those reservists into the field because yes, they've had previous military training, and yes, they are they do refreshes every so every sort of year, but those refresher courses don't include anything beyond sort of very small-scale platoon and company training and basically shooting off a few rounds of ammunition to check that they can still shoot straight. Um, so operate, so operating, as part, operating as part of battalions and operating, you know, and conducting quite, a com- quite complex, you know, quite tactically complex offensive action. Those troops probably haven't trained to do that in three, four, five, six years. So they're going to need some time to refamiliarize, to be retrained and refamiliarize themselves with their equipment. So even if Putin calls up the reserves, which allegedly he's going to do as part of his Victory Day speech, his uh, VE Day speech, even if they do that, it would be unlikely to see, you'd be unlikely to see them in Ukraine in any numbers before August, maybe even early September. What's the terrain like in Ukraine? In eastern Ukraine, it's quite... In eastern Ukraine, it's, it's good tank country. It's relatively flat. There are some, there are some significant rivers. Um, and one of the things the Ukrainians have been doing is systematically blowing bridges and targeting Russian bridging equipment. Um, which is smart because there are a lot of it's flat country, but there are a lot of small rivers to cross and a couple of big ones. Um, I, I remember reading that there are parts of Ukraine where the best time to invade is when the Russians did invade because it's it's basically when it's not too cold, but the areas that are prone to get quite muddy are, are, are still frozen. Yeah. Should I carry on? Well, I mean, the, the best, the best time, the best time to invade would be high summer, sort of. I would think, sort of, I would think, sort of early, early to, I think, sometime in June. Okay. It's not coincidental that you know Operation Barbarossa began on the twenty second of June. Um, so the best, the best fight, the best fighting weather is still ahead of us. Um, yeah. So eastern and southern Ukraine is large, is largely flat. It's largely ag- agricultural. There are. There are several made. There are several major towns and cities in um, in the Donbass that the Russians would need to take if they want to consolidate control over that particular region. And given the given the enormous time it's taken them and the casualties it's taken taken them to partially secure Mariupol, I think that's that's going to be very very difficult. Haven't they pretty much captured Mariupol? It's just, it's just the steel plant that's now. It, when when you say steel plant, I kind of underestimate it. Think like a massive, in, a massive industrial estate with multiple okay. factories on it, and also that that factory district has multi, has multiple bunkers sort of from the Cold War built underneath it as well. Um, so it's yeah, the been the Russians have been carrying out the equivalent of B fifty two strikes on it, and it hasn't really made a dent. I I, sh- I can just imagine some Russian commander going, "Which idiot built all these bunkers?" And someone sheepishly going, "Oh, but sorry, boss." 
um, yeah, so, I mean, you wanted to talk about this as well. The arms pipeline from the West is now really open to Ukraine. They are receiving large amounts of heavy equipment. I mean, that means, and, yeah. Go on. And I mean, the, the US Congress has gone so far as to reactivate the 1941 Land-Lease Act. I didn't know Ukraine had bases in the Caribbean. I know, it's just sparkling arsenal of democracy otherwise. <laughs> But yeah, and I think, I mean, I don't know whether Lend-Lease is the way forward to this, but I do think the more sort of, and Biden has sort of requested $33 billion in supplementary aid for Ukraine. I think this is going to be important because the Ukrainians are going to have to start placing their own orders with various manufacturers around the world. We can't, NATO collectively can't keep running down its own stocks of ammunition and equipment and sending them to Ukraine. Ukraine's going to have to start placing orders for its own needs. Well, I mean, no, I think it's it's more it's yeah. more fundamental than that, though, isn't it? Because y- Ukraine's economy is in a vice because yeah. the the Russians um, the Russians are blockading Ukrainian ships from leaving. The Black Sea. Um, that is where almost all of Ukraine exports go. Ukraine is quite an export dominated economy, things like wheat, fertilizer, even weapons. Um, and also like heavy industry with steel, yeah. aluminium, things like that. And so, given the Russian kind of redoubt in southeastern Ukraine, given their control of the Black Sea, yeah. Um, it's not clear how you can actually end that very quickly. If at Although all. that control, that Russian control of the Black Sea is going to become, if these arms deliveries go ahead, it's going to become far harder to maintain. Because, for example, one of the things that the UK is supplying um, Ukraine with is the, the Brimstone, which is a surface to surface naval missile that you can literally put on a speedboat uh and you know it's the kind of it's the kind of thing it's obviously a different type of weapon but it's the kind of thing the iranian revolutionary guard corps used very effectively um in the persian gulf in the persian gulf in the in the iran iraq war um in the 1980s to stop the iraqis blockading the iranian coast yeah, maybe. Um, so I'm not I, saying I'm not saying the, the Ukrainians are going to be able to break a Russian blockade, but they're going to make they're going to be able to make it much more costly to maintain. Yes, yeah, that's that's fair. Yeah, but like Ukraine, I mean, this is I did a very long. I think you said very me article on my Substack. Um, oh, very, very you. It's like it's like it's like somebody poured will and forgot to add water. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's a good way of putting it. Which is basically my uh, thoughts on where the war was going a, a couple of months ago. And one of the things I said I said is you actually look at what the Russians had done and dissolution of the Soviet Union. I think this whole Selvecki gap is overblown. Um, The Russians are clearly mostly concerned with the Black Sea. Now, whether they're concerned about the Black Sea because they're concerned about the Black Sea 
or whether they're concerned about the Black Sea because it allows them to control the countries that border it, or a bit of both. Who can say? But if the Russians do control the Black Sea and they are using it aggressively against Ukraine, Ukraine is fucked economically. Um, and it's not entirely clear how you can actually break Ukraine out of that vice, short of a deal where, like, the current borders are accepted, but Ukraine then becomes, you know, all singing, all dancing member of the West under, under NATO umbrella, and you can start building the infrastructure for it to export stuff to Western Europe, um, uh, to the Baltic via rail. Yeah, um, I mean, let's let's uh, let's just go back a bit and talk about what's going on in what's going on in Eastern Ukraine because the, the Russians have switched tactics um, from what they were doing from what they were doing around Kiev, which obviously. So, failed. Let me just finish this point, but then we get definitely do that. The point is though. No matter how much money we've been given for military weapons, no matter how much money has been spent on refugees, the amount of money that's going to have to be spent on just propping Ukraine up as an economy is going to dwarf both. And then the key thing comes then is how do you spend that money without enfeebling Ukraine, like what happened in Afghanistan? You have to spend the money while still making Ukraine, whilst Ukraine is still a real thing. And I think that's a much more challenging balance to strike than some people sometimes assume. Yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a reason. I think there's a reasonable. I think there's a reasonable concern there. But I mean, there are differences. I mean, obviously there isn't. Obviously, you know, the Ukrainian state existed and pre-existed. Um, this conflict, and let's not let's not romanticize it. Ukraine has, uh, you know, had serious problems of corruption, but it's not like the it's not like NATO or the US was trying to build the Ukrainian state capacity from the ground up, like it was in Afghanistan. Also, you know, I think I mean talking about talking about sort of talking about sort of nationhood is very difficult and it's a very nebulous concept but i think what's i think what's clear is whereas whereas the whereas the war in afghanistan tended to provoke apathy in the in the vast majority of the population i think what we've seen in ukraine in the last couple of months is that you know there is a re- there is a real willingness there is a real willingness to fight this conflict for as long as it for as long as it needs yep. to go on for. absolutely yeah um, and I, th- I think I think, that, I think those are the key differences. And arguably, actually, the effect of the effect of the war has been to has been to galvanize has been to galvanize the Ukrainian state. Now, I think the longer term longer term problem may be does that does that then lead to Zelensky and the people around him adopting you know quite authoritarian quite authoritarian politics. But I think that's a discussion. That's a discussion for that's a discussion for later on. Well, I mean, I think the, I mean we we had this discussion back in February, and I said I didn't think partition was possible because I couldn't see a line that yeah. the Ukrainians could accept 
that the Russians would accept. I, I think the fact that we've now learned that Putin kept offering a partition with Poland is instructive. He wanted to take so much of Ukraine that a lot what was what was left wasn't viable as its own country. Where are you getting? Where I hadn't heard this. Where are you getting that? From? Oh yeah, it's been in the European press for 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 months. Okay. Um, yeah, a Polish minister uh, came out and said that Putin had offered this um, uh, uh, years ago, years and years ago. Um, but like you know, they wanted to leave a rump Western Ukraine that wouldn't be viable by itself. So I'm guessing that's Galicia. That's the bit of Ukraine. Yeah, I'm sure it would have been Hungary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so partition, partition was never actually viable. But if you were somebody... <laughs> and the, and the Poles' decision, they're going, it's a trap! Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Sorry, that, that's, a Star, that's a Star Trek and a Star Wars um, The, But, but the... Um, but if you did think partition was possible or justifiable... Well, there's there's no way that's on the table now because yeah. uh, you 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 don't have to believe everything the, the Ukrainian government pushes out to not realize that the east the eastern Ukraine southern Ukraine has been radicalized against Russia due to the Russians' actions and how they've been treated. Yeah. Um, you know, like people forget this. Before, before the you know, execution of the you know the, the post office terrorists, before the uh, black and tans, there was actually a heavy pro British faction in Ireland, yeah, um, and that was all gone by 1920. You know these things can turn very quickly um, when people are kind of torn between blood and soil nationalism. And allegiance to like a more distance power, and I think Ukraine's gone through that crucible. Yeah, um, and so just the just. By the way, of... this, this must be the most surreal thing because, like, I have gone proper crypt keeper now. <laughs> it's okay if you if you struggle if, if you. Struggle I'm not, I'm not in pain. I'm not in pain. It, it just must sound like you. You're talking to like the burning bush or something. <laughs> no, you know what you're saying. No, you sound like you sound like uh, you sound like a late night radio DJ. <laughs> and now on Smooth FM, <laughs> some Smooth J and now Teddy G. <laughs> um, so yeah, just just going back to what's going on in Eastern Ukraine at the moment. Without getting into without getting into too much detail, basically the Russians have. The Russians have gone back to doing what the to doing what the Red Army was always uh, quite good at, which is just laying down, which is just laying down a massive amount of firepower. Um, so you've had these you've had these Russian advances in the Donbass, supported by enormous concentrations of artillery. I mean, I'm spoken perhaps a bit facetiously a moment ago, but like some of the some of the footage some of the footage you're seeing. It really does bear comparison with like World War II newsreel stuff. The only difference is it's in colour, um, and it's got like techno music put all over it. I don't know why they do that. Um, 
Because it's rad, Luke. Because it's yeah, rad. but the so the way these the way these sort of local attacks are going is the Russians are laying down heavy, really heavy artillery preparation. The Ukrainians are then falling back to avoid that to avoid those artillery strikes. The Russian infantry, the Russian infantry and tanks are then advancing, and the second they get the second they get beyond the range of their own artillery, the Ukrainians are just counterattacking them and pushing them back. So the net effect of this is that the Russians are advancing but very, very, very painfully, slowly. And um, uh, I don't know if you've heard of him, Luke, but a guy called Phil O'Brien. Oh, yeah, fellow, he's a good Twitter follower, is Phil O'Brien. He, he's a good Twitter follow. But he's making a point that these these advances are um, are coming at quite a loss to the Russians. Yeah, the the, the Russians. Are the, I mean, it, it's it's always it's always a bit. It, I always sort of hesitate with this because we know a lot more about because of the Ukrainians, at least in Europe and North America, are winning the propaganda war. We know much more about Russian losses than we do about Ukrainian. But yeah, the, the 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 Russians are the Russians are losing a lot of troops, and the the units that they withdrew from Kiev have just been fed straight back in into the fighting without enough time to re-equip themselves or make good their losses in manpower. <coughs> and so, so there's no way Putin's going to be able. To announce anything close to um, a convincing narrative of a victory by May the 9th, Victory Day, which is obviously, you know, a very important day in the Russian calendar. It marks for Russia, it marks victory in the Second World War. Um, and you know, this this is an occasion where you know the Russian president and before them the Soviet General Secretary are expected to say something. You know, are expected to be there and expected to make an announcement of some kind. So I think all eyes are going to be on that Victory Day parade on May the 9th. And what Putin is going to say in that speech, I really don't know. Because he's really only he's really only got the option of escalation or trying to call for a ceasefire and some kind of negotiation. And as I said, like we can talk about this a bit more if you want to, but like the spigot is not just from the US but also from the the rest of NATO with sort of the well, just, with the I, I would it would be good to talk about that but just 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 on um victory yeah. day should be noted that um whilst I think it would be fair to say like you kind of implicitly said when people talk about the world uniting against uh, yeah. Russia that is an exaggeration yeah it's, it's mostly Europe and North America really and, and countries shit scared of China Yes. You know, the countries that aren't in North America and Europe who are united against Russia are those who really want Europe and North America to unite against uh, China, if China so does you're anything. Australia, New Zealand, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Taiwan, Vietnam to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah those countries. Um, but um, what, what is interesting is the Central Asian states. Um, Because they have clearly taken, uh, despite Putin going, no, guys, you're cool. When I said 
it was a mistake to let the National Republics go. I didn't mean you guys. Like, <laughs> and one of the things they have all done is they've, I think a lot of them have cancelled their um, Victory Day event. Uh, ca- ca- uh, Kazakhstan has. Yeah. And like Kazakhstan is like, look, there's not many things right to the nowadays where I like, oh, Putin's been really hard done by. The Kazakhstani government wouldn't be imposed today without Vladimir Putin. You know what? You, you know. You know what? It, you know what? It re, you know what? It really reminds me of. It reminds me of the Russians saving the Austrians in eighteen forty-eight, <laughs> <laughs> and that that great quote is it from what's it Schwarzenberg? You'll be you will be amazed at the depth of our ingratitude. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like. What are you doing, guys? <laughs> um, um, but yeah, no, like, um, yeah, so I, I, I was reading an interesting article. I don't I can't remember where. But what's also interesting is I, I think people, when people hear that Russia celebrates the end of the Second World War, I think they think of what happens in the West, where it's, it's very somber. It's, you know, war is hell. Remember the dead. Let bygones be bygones. That's not what Victory Day is in Russia, is it, Luke? No, it's basically we rock. Yeah. <laughs> look, look, look at all, look at look at this massive show of military hardware. Don't fuck with us. <laughs> I remember being really as like as not a child. I'd have been a, I'd have been a young young man, teenager. Um, Tony Blair turned down an invitation to attend Victory Day on what yes. would have been the 60th anniversary. Yeah, it was it, it was it was during was it during Kosovo? No, 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 no. This this was after this. He may have done it then as well, but like this okay. this was like a, gonna be a big one. Like this is gonna be like the I think it was the 60th anniversary, even the 60th or the 55th. And um, I remember thinking, oh, that was really wrong. You know, Russians sacrificed a lot. We we should have accepted the invitation. Yeah. Um, now I, I now I can see more why he may have been told not to go. Yeah, it's a it's a very it's a even even during the Yeltsin years, it's, it's just it's just a moment of it's just a moment of you know really sort of pumped up nationalism. Um, um, and it, it always amuses me that because this is going to be like the fourth year running where they're going to show off like the the, the new Armata tanks and uh, that um, that infantry fighting vehicle with the stupid name that I can't remember. Um, and these are like these are really you know really new cutting edge top of the line um, tanks and fighting vehicles that they can't put into mass production. <laughs> They, they basically only exist to be rolled through Red Square because they're, how... ex- they're too expensive for them to mass produce. How do you do a victory parade when you're all you're fighting a war? Like, yeah, sure. I mean, they, they, it's it's interesting actually. They have actually drastically cut cut the size of it back. Um, in terms of like the number of people that are going to be marching in the marching in the parade. 
Like, you, you, your, your instinctive reaction is, <laughs> what the fuck are you guys doing? Don't you know there's a war on? Yeah. Yeah. And like, it's going to be, like, I've seen the, the rehearsal photographs. They seem to be, like, a lot more like auxiliaries, like, you know, emergency services and stuff, which is always part of the, which is always part of the parade. It's not always, not a strictly military thing. So you get like representatives of the fire service, the police, the FSB, and what have you. They seem to be much more prominent this year for obvious reasons. Do Do you get a cadre of uh, of uh, bookshop uh, shoe sellers from New Zealand? No, I've... have you not? I I, I was re- reading Twitter today, and apparently in the eighties. Putin served time in New Zealand undercover, and his oh, really? co- and his cover was being a, sh- a shoe salesman. Oh really? Home yeah. of those were ice cream men. I know. Like when you hear that, does that make you assume he wasn't very good? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is this has always been sort of known. He wasn't. He wasn't exactly a high flyer in the KGB. Because <laughs> um, like this is the thing, like. The people around it, guys like Sergei Ivanov and Nikolai, Nikolai Patrushev, they were like the, they were like the, they were like the, you know, they were, they were sort of signaled out as being the best sort of intelligence officers of their generation. You know, they got the postings to London and Washington and Vienna and stuff. While Putin was just sitting away liaising with the Stasi in Dresden, or what was basically a desk job. I, I wonder if it's because he doesn't have a poker face. Yeah, I wonder that. And also, like, I'm not, I don't want to get into, like, is, the, is Putin sick? Because there are so many different rumours and who are we to know what's going on? But my God, the guy is wearing a lot of foundation. <laughs> oh, yeah, but come on. that, that he, he, He's been guilty of stuff like that for a long time. Yeah, it's true. It's like... And also, like, there's this, there's this thing um, that his his mistress or like his main mistress hasn't been sanctioned. And somebody somebody put. Up, I wonder if one of the reasons they're doing that is to like make all the other oligarchs jealous, which is an interesting thought. Or or if they're working on her. Yeah, or if they're working on her. I'm trying to get her to switch. Yeah. Anyway, the spigot of arms going. To yeah, like there is the like the. Obviously, this was going on the last time we spoke, but like that, there are now in not really large quantities of heavy weapons being shipped to Ukraine. So we have like more than ninety American one hundred and fifty-five millimeter guns, and like one hundred and fifty thousand rounds of ammunition um, to go with that. We have more than two hundred tanks being shipped from Poland. That's enough to equip two entire brigades worth of Ukrainian troops. We have the UK, as I said earlier, sending Ukraine anti-ship missiles. Um, we've got uh, states from across Eastern Europe, although they're not supplying um, entire jets to Ukraine, they are supplying massive amounts of spare parts that actually have allowed the Ukrainian Air Force to grow because it's allowed the Ukrainians to put fighters back into circulation that were broken because of a lack of parts. Um, Ukrainian troops are being trained in Germany to operate a variety of US um, artillery systems and US tanks and allegedly F-16 fi- allegedly F-16 fighters as well. 
I, it's, gonna be, it's gonna be hilarious when yeah. when when like Putin Putin waits for the right moment and he gives the order to Zelensky to, to to turn and it turns out it was a huge ruse and it's a double cross <laughs> and you get the the Ukrainian Lithuanian Commonwealth as Ukraine marches into the Baltic states of the yeah. boat. And I mean, this is that was uh, a joke, is, by the way, everybody. Yeah, it's a joke. But I, I do think, I do think, like, in all seriousness, I do think, like, we are starting to get to the stage where, yeah, Ukraine is going to have to start placing orders with arms manufacturers to meet its own needs because the amount of stuff that's being transferred from NATO stores is starting to worry me, frankly. <laughs> well, uh, Luke, Luke, Luke. Yeah. I, I'm 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 surprised at you. What you actually mean to say is, is that NATO countries should be ordering more stuff. Yes. Like Everybody Ukraine can, should be ordering more stuff. Ukraine can keep taking whatever they want as long as it's replaced. Well, what? But no, in all seriousness, I do think you know. I do think it's time we transition to Ukraine placing orders with manufacturers directly. And that, that's why that's why I actually think, you know, the, the whole reactivating lend lease is a bit, you know, a bit Rococo. But something along the lines of that arrangement is going to be how this ought to work. Um, because it's also, it's all, that's also a good way of meeting your concern about, like, uh, yeah. you know, uh, basically flooding the Ukrainian state. Because it, by using a model like lend lease, it keeps the Ukrainians responsible for spending the money in a way that's, you know, resp- in a way that's effective. Do you, do you want to explain what Lend-Lease is? For those? Actually, you want to do it, because I, I realise I've been speaking for quite a while. So, yeah, you well, have well, it. Well, well, basically, it's like, you know, hey, Britain slash Ukraine, here's all this load of old shit we've got lying around in our store cupboards. Do you want it? Um, whatever you can return to us in fit condition after the war, yeah. um, don't worry about it. Whatever, whatever gets blown up in the course of war, you owe us its full price as of when it was brand new. Oh no, your economist fucks. Oh well. And also, it's it's also you can place orders <laughs> in our factories, and we'll get when we'll gar- and we'll guarantee you we'll guarantee oh, yes. delivery. Basically. That's the more, this is the thing like it's weird in Britain because the bit I explained is the one that people tend to pay more pay yeah. more attention to because that was the first bit of it and the one that Churchill most trumpeted. But you're right, the, the second bit is more important. Yeah, and also it's in fairness, it should always be pointed out that Britain did its own version of lend lease to the Commonwealth and the Empire with the Sturmic balances. Which is we're going to take a massive amount of raw material and weapons, and we'll pay for it after the war, and we'll pay for it on our own terms and our own time, and we'll determine the rate of interest we get as well. Do you ever think devolved governments and regional governments, if should swap notes with like like if if they could travel back in time and swap notes with like the Canadian and Australian governments, they'd realise that London is always looking for somebody to bully. <laughs> well, it's not, so, it was, it's, not so, it's not so much India, it's not so much Canada and Australia, it's, India, it's places like India, Iraq, and Iraq, Iraq, Iran, Nigeria. 
Um, but, India in particular, the Sterling Bullets. I don't think we settled those to like the 1980s. The um, the best one has to be South Africa when we organised a coup. Well, no, we did that in Iraq as well, didn't we? Iraq yeah. and South Africa. Why, why do we? Why why is nobody organising a coup in, in in Saudi Arabia, Luke? Come on, You're, <laughs> you 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 actually know a lot about Saudi Arabia. Yeah, Ukraine. no, I mean, I mean, I I. I I don't. I don't know. I re- I really don't know. Wait, why like, the hell is the CIA playing that? Because <laughs> it's like, yeah, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, went over there to ask him to uh, ask Saudi Arabia to start pumping more oil, and uh, he mentioned he me- he apparently mentioned Adnan Khashoggi in passing, and like MBS flew completely off the handle and told him to pound sand. <laughs> Is that okay? The next time the Iranians are playing up, you call the Chinese. You call the Chinese and see what they say. It's just like, what type of client state is this for fuck's sake? Yeah, but this is the problem about client states. They don't know their client states. Yeah, it's 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 bad it's bad times. But yeah, no, it's um yeah, I I, I think the thing is it's 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 we seem to be getting into the situation where the, the question is what will snap first? Um Russian patience of loss of life or um European patience of loss of money because clearly Britain and America don't mind sending as many weapons into Ukraine um, as they can. Um, Ukrainians are clearly up for the fight and will keep fighting. Um, no, rightly so. I think they know that if if Russia was allowed to uh, have a convincing win, it'd be the end of their independent nationhood. Not just no, not 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 no, not not to fight neutrality, anything like that. Their independent nationhood. Uh, Putin is cl- clearly knows that he must be all in on securing victory, and he's not going to back down. So yeah, I, I uh, to me it feels like either the oligarchs or the security state gets pissed off with the loss of life and topples Putin. It won't be the oligarchs. The oligarchs don't really have any yeah. meaningful political power. It's the Spartans, just... um, or it'll be the Europeans. Going, this is costing us too much money. The sanctions regime is too tight. Some did we cannot have this be a stalemate for years on end. I mean, the you know the you know the the old um, the old quote about the, the you know the Soviet Union as an army with the state attached to it. Yes, um, like modern Russia. Modern Russia seems to be an intelligence service. With a state attached to it. Hey, look, it worked great for Pakistan. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, speaking of Europe, speaking of Europe, like probably the biggest single player in that is the Germans. So, do you want do you want to talk about that for a bit? <laughs> oh, the Germans. Oh, 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 Olaf, Olaf, man, what are you doing? Well, it's this. This could bring that government down. It's this is it not. Could. It is not inconceivable. Um, look, we sh- we should we should be trying to be fair to the Germans. Basically, you know how Germans 
keep uh, brag keep bragging about how they don't have a far right. I mean, they kind of they kind of do with alternative Germany, but you know, not not in the same way France and briefly Britain did. Um, well, it's because they're not the the industrialized in the way France and Britain have. Why have they not deindustrialized? Well, they've not deindustrialized because they've pursued very aggressive policies to maintain their industrial base. The biggest, uh, one of which was obviously the euro, which meant that uh, the German currency has been under, undervalued. Deutsche Mark would be far higher in worth than the uh, euro would be. But a big one, certainly more recently, say past 15 years, has been this deep alliance with Russia in terms of the provision of raw materials. You know, very cheap oil, very cheap gas that has allowed Germany to compete on a global marketplace in a way that a country of its living standards shouldn't be able to do. And if Germany says goodbye to Russian oil and gas, particularly gas, then the the inevitable consequence and not that long-term consequence, you know, medium-term consequence will be the destruction of German industry um, as it is now. You know, it will have to become a reduced sector on the British-French model, where you're doing the most high-priced, high-value stuff that, you know, the margins are so high, you don't have to move it over, you don't have to move it to the lowest common denominator country. And... Germans don't want to give it up. They don't want to give up their industrial miracle. Um, the SDP particularly doesn't want to give it up because they are the party of the industrial working class. Um, so, you know, they are they are raging against the dying of the light. Yeah. And what they and are... I mean, and I mean, were that to happen as well, it would have profound implications for like the whole setup of the European Union as well yeah um, and so what clearly and like Schultz was talking about this when they first went into negotiations about the initial sanctions packages and what Schultz has always talked about is like having gears to work up through because I think what Schultz has always been concerned about is being put in a corner where the only thing left is to ban gas. And so what he has done repeatedly is agree to things, then stall on the implementation, and then as things are coming to a crunch, agree to implement things. So like one of the things you were mentioning was like, Ukrainians have to put all their own orders in. Now, to be fair to the Ukrainians, they have been putting some orders in. 
and some of those orders have been with German manufacturers until like what the last two weeks the German government was stopping the Ukrainian government buying I think it was armored vehicles yeah buying armored vehicles from German suppliers not what didn't want to give them to them not didn't want to pay for them was stopping the Ukrainian government buying them in the, in the free market um, and obviously caved on that um, there's talk they're going to cave on uranium uh, unbanning Russian uranium well of course they're going to cave on that because they you know, they want to wind down the, the nuclear plants anyway there's talk they'll cave on the oil ban because you can always buy oil from elsewhere but like these are all stratagems to delay, 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 delay any kind of reckoning over gas. Because I've said, the German business model won't survive um, the end of, Rus- of Russian gas supplies. Um, you know, it will be a catastrophic event. And I've seen people say, oh, no, it'd be the different, it'll only be like two, three, four percent of GDP. Yes, that's true, but you extrapolate that over 10 years and that will quickly compound. Yeah. You know, two, three, four percent of GDP. That's much bigger than in the worst case scenario for Brexit. Um, uh, you know, and the people who believe those scenarios didn't support Brexit. Um, that's true. And, and, and to give you an idea of the depths of the Germans double dealing on this, the German, uh, I was listening to Wolfgang Munch's Euro Intelligence podcast this week, and they were going through um, the, the, the latest round of this pay, Europeans pay for gas in rubles. So for those who don't know, obviously, one of the first things um, the West did when the invasion happened was um, we we took out we, we basically effectively made it illegal to use rubles for like transactions we attacked Russia's currency and that caused like it caused tremendous it caused a tremendous crash in the value of the ruble now Russia imposed capital controls effectively imposed a confiscation of of foreign currency held by Russian uh, deposit holders. So they've actually been able to restore the value of the ruble back above what it was before the sanctions hit. But those measures are starting to run out of road. You know, there's only so much foreign currency earnings you can confiscate. It's a in a sanctions regime, it's a finite resource. So what um, what Putin has at, has demanded is that hostile countries pay for their gas and oil in rubles. And the way that this would be done a bit complicated, I'm not sure I entirely understand this, is you 
open a bank, you open an account with Gazprom, which is apparently both a bank and a gas company. Who knew? Yeah, no, it's had a bank. It's had a banking arm for quite some time. Um, you open a bank account with Gazprom. You deposit your euros in there. You move your euros into the ruble section of your account. You then pay your supplier. And only when a supplier has received the rubles is a transaction considered complete. What this means is the Russians don't have to worry about sourcing the rubles and doing the kind of washing of the money themselves. They can get the Europeans to help them to do it. Um, the commission has said they believe that this is sanctions breaking. I'm not sure it is because the sanctions always had these caveats that they'd have nothing to do with impeding the flow of fuel to Europe. Like I, I remember reading some of the American proclamations and they always said anything to do with food or fuel wasn't touched. You know, the ones about uh, yeah. uh, sanctioning banks. And, but van der Leyen has said it very clear that she thinks that this breaks sanctions. Two major German uh, gas buyers, gas suppliers, say they're going to go ahead with it. None have said they won't. A major Italian gas supplier has said it is has opened up an account. Um, it looks like they're just going to go ahead with this and swallow the Russian, um, what the Russians are demanding of them. Um, even though the Russians this week um, uh, stopped supplies to Poland and Bulgaria. Bulgaria due to them refusing to do this. So so yeah. It's 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 a bit of a mess, but as I said, like I you know, the arms stuff that, that there's a consensus in Germany that Schultz is wrong. I mean Schultz is this weird thing when he was like Germany giving arms to Ukraine risks nuclear war. We must not risk nuclear war and it's like well how how does Germany doing this any different from all the other countries that are doing this did you not say you're going to do this back in March <laughs> like something weird is going on um, with how um, he is he, he is handling this yeah um and of yeah. course, and, and unfortunately for him, the new um, the new CDP uh, CDU. CDU leader, even new CDU leader, um, it is a, is is a is a is a fresh slate. It's not somebody particularly close to Merkel. In uh, oh God, what's their name? Uh, Frederick Hertz, is it? Yeah, 
not someone particularly close to Merkel, somebody who can save a rattle on this issue. Mertz, I think. Mertz, Mertz, you're right, you're right. Yeah. Um, um, somebody who can save a rattle on this. And, yeah, you know, it would not surprise me if, if Schultz keeps playing these double games, Mertz gets to kind of replace him at the head of the coalition because, look, at the end of the day, whilst, yes, it's, it's weird because I'm, whilst it'd be difficult to see a German government give up the industrial base, it's impossible to see one led by the SDP do it. Maybe a, a CDU, FDP, Green Coalition would grasp the, natural, grasp the nettle and move Germany into the 21st century. But who knows? Yeah. So anyway, shall we talk about a topic just as weighty and just as important? Well, I was, I was going to, uh, to, to have a brief gap in the all Luke all the time. I was going to briefly talk about the French elections. Oh, go on then, yes. Um, 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 uh, th- this is a shit. I, uh, my, my, uh, my opinion on this, listeners, is very simple. I don't care. They're all foreigners. <laughs> this is a shit in a sandwich that is this podcast for Luke. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it's weird... This is a danger where you don't have, uh, you don't keep to your regularly scheduled podcasts. Because if we had the one in advance of the election, of the act, the second round, I would have called the result pretty much as it was, even though that probably doesn't sound in line with what I said at, on the previous podcast. I think t- 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 a few things came out that um, meant that Le Pen was going to do less well than it looked possible she would do immediately after the first round. One, I think, one as, as I was talking to Simon about, one of the things, just like Luke didn't care, one of the things I was struck by... It's not that I know. No, I, I'm just going to explain this. It's not that I don't care, but I have a I have a rule that I and this is based on you and I ask. And like this is based on this is based on listening to foreigners talk about British elections. I don't think foreigners can talk unless you are like an academic expert on them. I don't think foreigners can talk intelligently about other countries' elections. I, I think, think you that... have to be immersed in a country's politics to talk about its elections. But you go ahead, Will. <laughs> I think you can. With your, you Ill, with your ill-informed speculation. <laughs> I think you can. Obviously, you, you can't talk in the same way as a domestic person, so I think, I think yeah. that's fair. I mean, the thing I'd been struck by was the fact that anti-system candidates had got over 50% of the vote. If you added up... Uh, Le Pen, um, Zemmour, Mechelon, um, added up all those votes together. You, you got over 50% of the vote. I think what, has, what became clear was that the late search for Mechelon was actually pro-system voters 
lend on the left, lending them, uh, lending him their votes to try and stop Marine Le Pen getting to the second round. So actually, rather than anti-system voters having, I think, something like 51, 52% of the vote, they probably had about 48, 47% of the vote. Um, so it probably wasn't the breakthrough in like protest voting against the system that we fought. And you see this in the exit polls where uh, uh, Mechelon voters seem to have split uh, 40, 40, 20, 40 for Macron, 40 abstain, 20 Le Pen. Whereas before that infusion of left-wing tactical voting, they were much closer to even thirds. Um, okay, that's interesting. Secondly, um, Macron clearly responded by moving to the left. Um, he talked about how he was going to be a green, no, he was going to appoint a green prime minister um, and he was going to, um, you know, champion a liberal progressive vision. Um, so clearly the mistakes he made in the beginning of the campaign by kind of striking too many neoliberal poses, the debacle over the pensions, uh, increasing the pension age, um, he was trying to recover from. And I'm sure that helped encourage people to move over. And then thirdly, you know, it's, we, we keep talking about it. Um, the system works, you know, the, 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 the thing you always have to understand with a French electoral system is unlike ours or the Americans, although it is worth saying some American states use this system for similar reasons, although the system they were defending was not as benevolent. Um, the, the Fifth Republic was built under the specter of the French Communist Party of... Uh, the radical rights, you know, France was not a healthy society when the Gaulle uh, came in in '58. The Gaulle and Charles de Gaulle fixed it because Charles de Gaulle is awesome. Because Charles de Gaulle is awesome, and so the the two stage system is designed to ensure that if somehow a anti system, a radical candidate gets into the second round, people can take a good, hard look at them and really work out, mm, is this the person we want? Is this the person we really want? And it just, it worked this magic again, you know. Marine Le Pen had been able to, to talk about her issues in the, uh, in like, in what the Americans would call the jungle primary the catch-all primary, uh, the catch-all the first round. Um, the minute it was her and Macron, even though, you know, even though she did perform better than the than in, in the previous election, even if she had a better debate in, than the previous election, she still had to talk about the policies of hers that people find unpopular and scary. And that, again, helped people drift away from her. 
So yeah, I, I think I think it was clear by Thursday, Friday, Saturday, before before the before voting that this what she wasn't gonna hit that forty five percent, that this wasn't gonna be particularly close. Um um, for all these reasons, um, um, so yeah, so they're, they're the main three thoughts. I I think moving forward, it'll be interesting to see what happens with legislative elections. This is where I'm going to sound like Luke. The French legislative elections are like so complicated due to because they also use the two round system. That like you're really like I I think even as a French person you have to fo- follow politics pretty carefully to understand them and read the room. Um, I mean, it looks like Macron will get a majority, but the the big question will be is it last time round. The socialists, you know, everybody thought the socialists may not, that their collapse of presidential voting may not be mirrored in the in the parliamentary elections. And it was. Well, now we've had less Republicans collapse. Will their collapse be mirrored in the parliamentary elections? And you know, early polling does says that will happen. And so if you do have a situation where national rally is like the leader of the opposition, is like the, the primary opposition, what does that do for, for French politics? Because whilst they've been de facto the primary opposition for quite some time, um, arguably even, um, um, even under Holland, because I think there was, there was, I think most people assumed um, no, the year, two years before Holland's um, uh, re-election was meant to be his re-election campaign. The National Front probably topped the ballot. Um, they were never that strong a force in Parliament. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what what that may do for French politics if it happens. And like I say, I have no idea whether it would. The other thing. I do think people need to be careful where they kind of paint this doom and gloom picture of France. Like I saw a a hideously awful New York Times article talking about how, you know, French, French democracy is in danger like never before. And it's like, no, I made the kind of obvious cheap shot of, you know, there was a literal... I don't know if you call it a, a, a coup, a revolution, certainly a governmental systematic breakdown in the, in the crisis of 1958, where like you literally had Algerian paratroopers land in Corsica, the island near, near metropolitan France, as the staging post for a full-blown you know, invasion of a special operation in France, should um, should the the coup, the revolution, not succeed? So I think that was pretty that that was a pretty dangerous time 
for French democracy. You then, of course, have the hilarious moment when the ghoul betrays the Algerians. And by Algerians, we should say we mean the... The, the, the French, French Algerians, the Pied Noir? Yeah, the French Algerians. Um, and they, they go absolutely ballistic and try and kill him. Um, and the army, being at one, at one point, he has to go into hiding as the army is trying to find him to kill him. Um, 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 you, you also know you have things like the weird corrupt deal that Chirac and Cole were doing between themselves in the... Uh, no, it wasn't, was it Chirac and Cole or, or Cole? Let me uh, no, it was Chirac and Cole. Yeah, good, yeah. Yeah, the weird crook deals Chirac and Cole were doing in um, in the 90s, noughties. So, like, look, French democracy's fine. It's been through worse. I'm, I'm sure there are ways it could be better, but it's fine. And then finally, I just add to this, is I think there's an interesting question and I don't know the answer to it um, look there's no there's no way of denying that the, 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 what is now national rally has on the surface massively moved towards the center compared to what was the national front um, now you can say it's not enough. You can also say you don't trust it. And I would probably agree with both of those positions. But you kind of have to acknowledge it's happened. Um, now, they've been rewarded with, you know, from 2002, the combined far right in the first round, Le Pen on the first round, got 15, 16%, John Marie. So after all Marine Le Pen's done, she's managed to increase that by about 5, 6%. And then, well, now obviously what she's really made a difference is she's managed to get that, the second round tally up from 20% to 42%. But she's had to, like, really smooth as many of the rough edges of the national, of what was the national front as possible to make it acceptable to ordinary French conservatives. At what point does the national rally just become French conservatism? Um, yeah, maybe we will see this more clearly when it's not led by a Le Pen. If it is, yeah, if it, I was it, I was just about to say, isn't doesn't that day come when it's led by somebody not named Le Pen? If that ever happens, yeah, and I mean also the other the other question I got for you because um, Macron's term limited, he can't run for re-election, and he's effectively cannibalized both the centre right and the centre left, so. Like, who is the, I mean, you probably, you might not know the answer to this, but like, who is the candidate? Who is the system candidate in 2027? I, I, would, assu I would assume it'd be 
it'll be somebody in our marsh. Yeah, but our marsh isn't really a political party. There's no reason why it can't become one, though, is there? <laughs> I can never get over the fact that, that, that he chose a name that uses his initials. Yeah, it, 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 it's pretty funny, isn't it? I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, so the way it works with legislative elections, he he cooperated with, um, I think it's called the Democrats. So there's like an existing small liberal party. You would assume Macron would work to build um, Enmarche into, into a permanent fixture in French politics or not. I mean, again, like the one thing we always have to say is France is a real outlier in how weak its parties are. So it, it might, you know, as, as stupid as it sounds, it might just be that when Macron goes, a new form of the socialists and a new form of the Gaullists come back. And it was like he was never there. I, 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 I kind of doubt that. It's sort that. of the, the, you know, the, the putting your fist in a bucket of water thing. Yeah, like when the, the Stang was president, you know, like the Gaullists weren't in the top two in his re-election year. Because um, it was him versus Mitterrand. But like, you know, the Gaullists soon came roaring back under Chirac. But... Um, but uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I think you, you would assume he, he would, you would assume somebody as as ego driven as him would want his own successor in place. By the way, future European presidents, you would assume. Yeah, maybe. Young enough, um, you know. Obviously, the Germans have had it this time round. That'll make it easier for France to have it next time round. Um, um, yeah, I think um, I, I, I think I think like, you could easily see Macron being the next Commission president. You don't? You think he'd be Commission president, not council? <clears throat> not president of the council? No, no, there's no power in the council presidency. Okay. I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm, to me, it feels like the council presidency um, has become the sop to the smaller nations. Yeah, I think there's probably something to that. And it makes it easier for the big nations to rotate the more powerful role between them. Um. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, no, it's, it'll be interesting to see. I might have kept one, sorry, one other thing again, going back on French politics isn't as bad as people make out. Can we stop with this? He's the first president, you know, the first president to be elected since 2020, 2002, first president to be reelected without carpetation since 1965. Again, it's just doing this. It's just this attempt to make France seem really seem more turbulent than it actually is. You know, at the end of the day, uh, Pompidou died in office. 
the stand was a weird third party candidate that that was lucky to that that was look that was a miracle was viable for re-election anyway. Mitterrand did win re-election, admittedly with two cents of cohabitation. Chirac won re-election. Yes, now Chirac also had cohabitation, but the reason cohabitation was so frequent was because the parliamentary elections were midterm elections. You basically had built in cohabitation into the French electoral system. <laughs> A mistake they corrected um, uh, in 2002 were the leg legislative elections came immediately after the presidential ones. Sarkozy was, had, had won the third term for his party. So you would not normally favour him to win re-election because you're effectively asking to give a party a fourth term and a Holland was useless. So, you know, like basically this idea of France has, um, you know, very turbulent, unstable government rests on the stand not being able to repeat a miracle and Francois Holland being useless. And it has been reminded as well. Until Chirac's second term, French presidents served seven-year terms. Well, you know, you know, like John Major, let me get this right, John Major served just under seven years. I think it's on like six, six years, eight months, six years, six yeah. months. Made him like the, meant that that term of office, I think I'm right in saying, of the, of the 20th century, major's term in office was behind only what, Thatcher? Thatcher? Thatcher, Macmillan. Asquith. Thatcher, Asquith, Macmillan, um, Lloyd George. No, he was ahead of Lloyd George. Gonna say he would have been ahead of Lloyd George. Yeah, I think I think he was a. That was the fourth longest single, no, continuous term of office at less than seven years. So yeah, it's it's yeah. People talk a lot of nonsense about France. Yeah, including me. Including you. So we'll just, just quickly do uh, local elections. Um, shout out to Sam Friedman, who has filled the Stephen Bush shaped hole in both of our lives <laughs> by I mean, doing I, a fairly comprehensive, more yours. a fairly comprehensive guide um, to the local elections. If you're not already signed up to a Substack, go ahead and sign up to a Substack. Although he left Scotland now, the equation, and as, as an adopted Scot, I am required to feel offended by that. It's in the it's in the terms of my acquired Scottishness. He did explain. He did. He did, ex he did explain himself. He did. I, I mean, the 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 um, uh, you say hold him in 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 both our lives. Uh, one, you don't have a comp FT account. So no, you, I don't. You've been, and neither do you, technically. I do. It, it's it's one from a job I've I've not had in almost a decade, but you know, it, it, I still have it. 
But the, I, you, you've been cut. You've been going cold turkey on Stephen Bush. I have. It's, it's uh, terrible. And do, as we said before, like it's not like I'm not interested in local elections, but I am not in the minutiae as much as you. And yet you have been like, "Hey, are the new statesman doing anything about the local elections?" Don't think so, Luke. Have you seen any previews about the local elections? No, no, Luke. <laughs> We should we should also say John Elledgeditch did a good one about London as well. Yeah, so okay, I'm, so I'm, rather than like repeat um, Sam Freeman, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do a bit of football corner to start off with, if that's all right. That is fine. Um, so yeah, we should probably explain that. Um, no, we, we should. One, Scotland one, uses a, sorry, sorry, Scotland. Luke, Luke. One thing we should say is, go remember wrong. These are different to England. The last time these were contested was 2017. Which, by the way, my God, that's a long time ago. It really is. It re- they should have been contested last year, but they, they were. Um, the, the Scottish government decided to pass a bill that gave the councils an extra year because of COVID. So, oh, and that was also because they didn't want after what happened in. 2000 and yeah, they didn't want it clashing with the Scottish parliamentary elections. Yes, um, because yeah, that, that's just a recipe for chaos. And the reason it's a recipe for chaos is that the Scottish Parliament uses one uses two systems of voting, and then local council elections they use a third system of voting, which is a form of STV. Um, so the important thing to note is. No councils in Scotland are controlled by any one party. They're all no overall control. And they're all going to remain no overall control. So it's who gets to who gets to be the largest faction, who gets to be the largest group is the important thing. Because no because short of Labour, I mean Labour actually did hold a majority in Glasgow City Council up until 2017, even under STV. No. That's how entrenched they were. Um, they now no longer do. And actually, Glasgow for me is the big one to watch because Glasgow, in a funny way, is Scotland a microcosm. It's been run by a Green SNP coalition. Um, Labour is, very is, is that what you call a hand and its sock puppet? Yeah. So Labour are very very keen to to get back their role as sort of the dominant. Do you know Boston, what my you know what my favourite coalition was, Luke? What the Sutty Show. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so Labour are very keen to get back to the dominant position in Glasgow, and Glasgow City Council has met this Green SNP coalition has made an absolute hack, an absolute dog's breakfast to run in the council. I'm shocked. There have been all sorts of problems around libraries. There have been all sorts of problems. Around um, elderly care, there have been all sorts of there have been enormous problems around um, bin collections. It's not and, talk, It's not talked enough. The Greens, but, the Greens, are fucking useless. Yeah, they have exactly they have exactly the same problem with the bins in Brighton. But the Green Party seems to be ideologically opposed to people having their bins empty. It's, I, it's, I don't know where this comes from. I could like this is the thing like I I, I I think this is why you know buy shares in the Lib Dems because I think 
the Greens are just not able to build these beachheads in local yeah. government. Like, you know, it's the same, it's, they, they are going to end up being the same as UKIP <coughs> or the BMP or Respect. They can break through, but they I mean, can't. I would, I would, I would, I mean, obviously the BMP never made it to um, West. That's true. That's and, true. And like, Respect wouldn't respect was always a much narrower you know it was always a much narrower gauge thing than the green party is but i i take your point so from a labor point of view whether they have a good or a bad night in scotland is going to hinge almost entirely on glasgow to be honest um but i mean they'll also be they'll also be looking to make they'll also be looking to make gain they'll also be looking to make gains like across the central belt in edinburgh in you don't think that the the, the 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 share of the vote will matter as well? It will, it will, and they'll be looking, and parts uh, parts of Fife. Um, in terms of the SNP, they will. They're just looking to defend. Uh, I can't really see them making gains anywhere, particularly. I mean, they will pick up. They will pick up some seats. Here and there, because of the the vagaries of the vagaries of trans, the vagaries of um, the transfer system. Also, you know, Alba is standing a limited number of <laughs> Alba is standing a limited number of candidates. <laughs> the Greens are standing more candidates than they have done before, so there are more places for you know, there are more chances of the SNP picking up second and third votes from those parties. Than they have well, and also more places for SNP transfers to go. Yeah, and more places for SNP transfers to go. On, on Alba, so there is a Scottish woman's wrestler called Kaylee Ray, <laughs> who, who wrestles for WWE. And they have rebranded her as Alba Fire. <laughs> I'm amazed Alex someone hasn't sued yet. <laughs> the thing is, like, Alba's the word for Britain. Yeah, it's Albi. Yeah, it's the it's the root of Albion. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Um. So you know, for Labour, watch out for Glasgow, Edinburgh, and also I'd say I'd say the same for the SNP. But also look out for, look out for Ayrshire, look out for parts of Fife, my neck of the woods. Um. Yeah, and sort of that central industrial belt to sort of. Places like uh, places like Motherwell, Wish, or stuff like that. Um, for the for the Lib Dems, yeah, for the Lib Dems, it's going to be they're going to be looking at the Highlands and Islands in particular, as they always do. They're going to be looking for parts of Fife. They're going to be looking at parts of Ed. They're going to be looking at parts of Edinburgh. I have to say, like living in a Lib Dem parliamentary seat in both Westminster and the Scottish Parliament. Like the five, say what you want about the five Lib Dems, they work their tails off. <laughs> like I have been leafleted so many times by them, it's annoying. <laughs> um, I mean the 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 interest the interesting thing the interesting thing for me is uh, how how far could Douglas Ross disassociate himself from Boris Johnson? You have to bear in mind the Tories did very very well in Scotland. In these set of local elections in 2017, um, so they're coming off quite a high. 
Boris Johnson, you know, is not popular in Scotland. He's not popular in the rest of the country, but I think he's particularly unpopular in Scotland. Um, the poll was shown. And Douglas Ross has had this really weird thing of saying he should go and then backtracking on that when it was apparent that he wasn't going anywhere. Um, I don't think Douglas Ross has done anything wrong particularly. No, just, he has. He, he, he messed that up. What would you have done instead? I would I would have just kept to he should go and I wouldn't have invited him to my party conference. I'd, I'd, yeah, have, to, I'd, have, I'd have told Downing Street... I don't want. I don't want to not invite you, but if you don't find something pressing to do elsewhere, I'm gonna have to. You know, I, I just, you know, like he is gonna look. What's gonna happen if, like, I don't know. You saw the Times. The Times has got briefs of the Sue Gray report that says she's gonna go. Two-footed in on Boris Johnson. Yeah, um, she's going to go nuclear on him. Apparently, um, you know, he, 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 is he going to do an, a a a reverse reverse ferret? Yeah, and isn't that just a ferret? <laughs> I mean, isn't that just you can't reverse reverse ferret? Otherwise, you back where you started. That's just a ferret. Are you are you confused? Are you are you reverse polarity? Oh yeah, we're not we're not we're not. We're not. <laughs> We're not reversing the ferret, we're confusing the ferret. But, um... Yeah. Where, where is that? Where did that come from, by the way? It's a really weird expression. Oh, it, it's it's from old Doctor Who, isn't it? It's, 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 it's... it's no, 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 the, the ferret. Not the polarity, the ferret. Oh, oh, Why the, is it a ferret? Ferret in a sack. I was... Okay. Yeah, ferret in a sack. Okay. Um, um, right. Yeah, so, 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 yeah. So, basically, um, look. If the Tories don't get murdered, they're doing well. Yeah, and they're going to be looking to consolidate, the, particularly in places like, particularly in places like Perthshire, places like Ab- Aberdeen City Council, where which they've run since two thousand and seventeen with a bunch of renegade Labour councillors. That's true. I mean, I think it will be interesting. Yeah. I can see the Tories. I can't see them not dropping a few percentage points because they did so well last time. Yeah. But I could see there being a lot of churn in the Tories' support because all that's happened lately, you have to think the SNP vote will go down. Yeah, and there has been there has been there has been a little bit of Scottish polling that suggests the SNP has gone down. And that Labour has been the chief beneficiary of that. But on a regional level, I wonder whether Labour's benefiting more in the central belt and Labour's benefiting from Tories going down in places like Edinburgh, but the Tories are actually going to go up in places like Aberdeen. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um, And so, so, you know, for England and Wales... I don't want to. I don't want to talk too much about that because I'd, I'd basically just be regurgitating um, what Friedman wrote. I could give you something from it for England and Wales. Okay. I I think the Tories are going to get a shellacking in the West Midlands. Okay. Um, I think you have to remember, 
Andy Street um, only just, it actually did surprise me badly. He won, but he actually underperformed his polls um, last year. I have no doubt that if that election was taking place this year, he would lose even to Liam Bryan. Fine. Um, burn. burn. Um, because, you know, West Midlands economy is on its arse. Um, That's and, a technical term, by the way. Technical <laughs> term. Andy Street's big flagship thing is the Metro, which one is just a, as, as you know, as life has resumed, it's just a massive ball ache for loads and loads of people because it kind of means that so much of the West Midlands is currently dug up, laying down tram lines, desperately getting it done for the, uh, the Commonwealth Games. But also, the thing doesn't sod in work. It's currently in, I think it's third stoppage, a stoppage that has now been going on for over a month because the tram chassis keep cracking. So oh, that's not good. That's not good. So I, yeah, I, 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 I would expect Tories to do worse than people expect in the West Midlands. Yeah. The, the other, the other thing I will say, and I think this is going to be really important when we analyze <laughs> these uh, results next weekend or whenever it is. The, the 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 total shift in seats and wards may not. That's not going to reflect. What I'm saying is, it's, let me start again. It's going to be more important to look at the, the changes in the percentage of the vote rather than necessarily um, shifts in seats. Because, like, particularly in places like London, Labour is already so dominant there that actually, you know, winning more council seats in London for Labour is really difficult because they've won they you know they picked all the low hanging fruit and they picked all the medium hanging fruit. It's only the fruit at the very top of the tree that's left. Um, but, but also, also in like say for the Tories in Southern England, yeah, they may win and they may hold on to all their councillors, but if big majorities are becoming small majorities, that tells you an important story. It does. Um, it it does. So like the. The, change, the changes in terms of seats and councils are not going to tell, just because of the geography of this, are not going to tell you the whole story. It's also important to bear in mind that, you know, 2018 is the one set of local elections where Jeremy Corbyn did reasonably well. You know, not, not spectacular, but solid. So again, Labour's, Labour's all having to top a fairly solid result as well. You remember as well, it's... it's... <laughs> Funny how this works. They were also the set of elections, the only set of elections that Ed Miliband did really well in. Yeah. So, so like it's it's yeah, it's one of these ones where it, it keeps compounding. So uh, again, for... Labour's going to Labour's going to be racking up a lot of votes that don't necessarily do them a great deal of good in terms of seats. We we do actually have one more thing to end on before we finish the segment, but oh, which I which I forgot. To, well, it's a big story of the week, but to. Before, before, before we get onto that, I'll do Northern Ireland. 
But before we, before we move off the local elections, we should talk about the 2006 local elections. Oh, our anniversary. You know, oh, so darling, it's been, it's been a wonderful 15 years. Six, 16. 16. I didn't get you a present or anything. I didn't even get you a card. <laughs> so, um, um, yeah, this, this, this is... Um, this is a weird one because, like, yeah, the, the the basically, so obviously, me and Luke and Simon, although he wasn't he wasn't there yet, we all went to the University of Nottingham, and um, it was local elections were coming up, and it was like I, I I think it may have actually been you who said, "Is anybody watching the local elections?" Um, yeah, that that sounds right. Yes, and it would it would be for you because I think you'd previously like watched them with miles or something um um and so we there was another friend of ours by the way let's a, a, a former host of it could be wrestling and even a guest host on it could be said that's true um, yeah but um but so and hamish kind of volunteered but but me and hamish were running for su committees that night at union council so the agreement was made that we would come, we would all meet up at Hamish's house after we'd stood for election. So me, we went to, I, me and Hamish went to do our speeches. Um, um, I got to meet Matt Gale for the first time where he, he shook my hand and said, battle commences. <laughs> Because at that point, Matt Gale did not like the, pe- the people who I was friends with. Um, and then we went to Hamish's to watch the 2006 local elections, which were not good local elections, the Labour Party. No, they were not. Was th- that was Ming's bling as well, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the... Oh, my God, yeah, because that was the one where the Lib Dems did bizarrely well, even though they didn't have a permanent leader. <laughs> And had just forced out their previous leader after basically admitting they had been hiding the fact that he was a, you know, he he was a non-functioning alcoholic. Yeah. Um. But yeah, you got how 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 would you describe the conditions in Chippendale streets? Oh, that ratty student flat of yours, yours and Matt Gale and Hayley. No, no, Mac, neither Mac Gale. That Mac Gale was at uh, Aston Court. Oh, but, so it was you and Hamish and. Uh, it, so this was before even I lived there because I was I was moving oh, yeah, in. Oh yeah, it was Hamish's flight. Yeah. Yeah, it was just where, Hamish's. Where, where were you living? Were you in halls? I was sitting in halls. my first year. Yeah. Um But like, we knew I was moving in. So like, hey, we. So I think Hamish should have a flatmate. But it was like a chemistry friend of Hamish's, not somebody we knew. Um, but yeah, no, it was it was a hovel. <laughs> it was not a nice, it was a very stereotypical student apartment. Um, um and it had the grossest spare room. Oh god. Which yeah, is <laughs> 
you once stayed. I I remember once stayed in that, and you complained about the cold. I think that room leaked gas. Okay. Because I remember staying in there once and feeling weird, really ill afterwards. Okay. No, I just I just I don't I don't remember anything else than it was absolutely freezing. And that actually, that, that's probably they, they, those two things probably go together because it means you probably never turn the heating on. <laughs> but it was one of the, it, but yeah, it was a very odd house because it, it did have like a proper old student house kitchen in a sense of nowadays, like it, it was a house clearly not built to be a HMO. So, like, the kitchen was tiny. And, and it had no living room. Um, but, like, literally, you had, like, a sofa and barely a width of a person to where all the kitchen uh, tables were. And then the smallest TV in the corner to watch BBC One. <laughs> yeah. We knew how to live, <laughs> We really I think, is the, is the message you should take away from it. We really, really did. It was, yeah, a different era. A different era. Yeah, and it has to be said, as much as I'm making fun of it for being a hovel, it was in much worse state after after having me living in it for a year. <laughs> okay, so you wanna, do you want to very quickly do Northern Ireland and then we'll finish? No, we've got one more story after Northern Ireland. What's the that? big, the hardest story of the week. Well, you want to do Northern Ireland next, then? Yeah. So, uh, yes. So, uh, Northern Ireland Assembly elections. Um, What what can you say about these elections? They they are weird. Um, We all know unionists do not watch in vain to win these elections. But if you believe the polls, they are refusing to consolidate behind the DUP to stop Sinn Féin winning. My deluded, unpopular, almost certainly wrong belief is that the polls are probably going to be proven to be wrong. That actually people will, when they really think about it, go... Do I really want to give my vote to the UUP or Tough and allow Sinn Féin to come out through the middle? They will hold up their nose. They will give the DUP their votes in sufficient numbers that the DUP will at the very least scrape a draw with Sinn Féin. What happens in that scenario? I have no fucking idea. And I mean, I we, we know what happens. An executive doesn't get formed, but I'm saying, like, on paper, what's supposed to happen? Well, well it, in an ideal scenario, like, look, here's what should happen. You should abolish the positions of first and deputy for, uh, for first minister. They should be first minister, brackets, um, and do it. Like, that's how they work in reality. Yeah. You know? The first minister does not actually run the government. The first minister and the deputy first minister run it in in it as as a joint team. Well, I mean, it, it's even questionable whether that's how it really works. Because to, to me, it seems like each ministry is a part is a 
party feet, but that's a different conversation. Well, uh, I mean, this is a bit, I think it has once again became like that. And like, there's a big change made last year, which made it even more so like that. If the first minister and the deputy first minister get along, then they can get, they can bring the other ministers into line. If they don't get along, they can't. Um, because obviously they don't get along. Yeah. Um, so if the Irish Times, a Jong Tong of University of Liverpool, in the Irish Times, based on the current poll, he polls, he estimates Sinn Fein 26, DUP 24. Which is pretty remarkable when you think is that about. In terms of, is that in terms of seats? Yeah, that's in terms of seats after transfers, which is pretty remarkable when you think about all the shit the DUPs put people through these past five years. Mm. So it really, it really, really, really doesn't take much <clears throat> in terms of the the, the DUP. <laughs> Um, either beating its polls, getting some lucky bait breaks in transfers for the DUP to surprise people. Um, so put it this way if I was a bear man, I'd put some money on the DUP surprising people. Um, um, I, th- I think, I, I think, you know, if Sinn Fein win, they win, but like. So that, that's both of them shedding a lot of seats, presumably to the alliance. No, no, it's not that many. I, I think it's shedding a few, but not that many. I'll, yeah. I'll get I mean, both, even Sinn Fein, will be down from last from last time in terms of share of the vote. Um, oh, I, yeah, because I forgot. It's, it's a 98-member assembly, not a 108-member assembly now, isn't it? Uh, I, thought it, I thought it was 90. Oh, has it gone down again? Let me have a look. Because it started out as 108, and then they cut it back to 98. Is it 98? Yeah. One second. If you're saying 98, you're probably right. For some reason, I yeah. had a different number in my head. It's interesting. I saw, I read an article that said that the loss of the Unionist majority in 2017 was due to the reduction in number of seats. Yeah. That if you... Um, no, it's 90, Luke. Oh, so they've cut them again? Okay. No, it's not, it was always 90. It was 19 2017. Oh, okay. <coughs> I know it started out as 108 under the yeah. Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, so it went down to 90. Oh, I thought it went down. Sorry. Yeah, that's why I was getting confused. Like 98, no, yeah, 90. So, okay. yeah, so, so no, Sinn Fein had, nine, had, had 28 last time. Okay. So Sinn Fein will be dropping a couple of seats. The, this thing, you don't think you forget how far ahead. Also, no, so tell a lie. So Sinn Féin, I'm, I'm going to read this off Wikipedia. So in 2017, Sinn Féin got 27. So it'd be marginally down. The DUP got 28 in 
uh, 20, in, in 2017. So Debbie down four. Um, yeah, the, the big, I think from Tong's projections, Tuff would benefit slightly and then the Alliance would benefit. Okay. But, but like you look at some of the polls, like it, it is genuinely remarkable how little unionists have fallen back given a nightmarish five years unionism has had. Like, like I, I did the figures off one poll. In terms of percentages, unionism has fallen back. There's been a swing from unionism to nationalism of 3.5%. Yeah. And unionism is still just, it's still just bigger than nationalism. Just like, it's incredible. So yeah, so, so I said like, of, no sensible take is Sinn Féin will win just. I think there's a chance that the EUP will surprise people. Um, I think the I think another sign of that is polls are showing the alliance fall as we get closer to polling day. Um, um, yeah, we 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 will see. Um, but I think the key thing is like with Sinn Fein, there there, there clearly isn't this kind of ground sort of enthusiasm for a nationalist first minister. Um, there's an, you've, you've, you, there's an uh, 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 enthusiasm for a border poll. The economists had to think, oh, Sinn Féin's being cute by focusing on, um, you know, standard of life, quality of life uh, issues. They can pivot after the vote. I think we've seen this, the SNP People see through that. If you don't campaign at independence, if you don't campaign on these issues during the election, you don't get to exploit the election results forum afterwards. Yeah. People know the campaign they voted on. But we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. And, and like you were saying, it's going to be extremely difficult to to form a, 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 an executive, not least with the threats of legislation to, uh, you know, actually amend yeah, the Yeah, so basically new to, new, to, uh, new to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yeah. Anyway, in other news, Luke, as, as the son of somebody who was once a farmer, <laughs> um, have you ever Googled tractors? <laughs> no, I've never googled. I've never googled tractors. Uh, like if, if I if I want to watch porn, I, a I won't do it at work, and b I will just you know go on. I'm going to shut up. Actually, you're going to go on only farms. Oh. <laughs> 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 Very good. So, um, <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a uh, it's a very odd story because obviously, 
the, the issue of sexual harassment in Westminster is very serious. But Neil, the, the, the misadventures of Neil Parrish are just so ludicrous that they are just kind of darkly comedic. Like, well, yeah, I mean, well, we are back in the days of Ugandan discussions here. I mean, this is the thing like this. Last year, we'd often criticise Starmer for going going to the rock down down, keep talking about Tory Sleaze, who the idea being it just didn't really resonate with people. <coughs> this is a type of stuff that the Tories were getting hit, hit with in the 90s under that Sleaze heading. This is this is like the Tory MP who died whilst trying to auto asphyxiate himself with an orange. You know, this is a type of sexual, pathetic, kinky stuff that you know just doesn't kind of sit well with anybody. Um, it's like fine if okay, okay, if people want to do this stuff, but do it and you do it in the privacy and don't. Nobody wants to hear about it. Well, I, th- I think with this one, it's like, it's obviously, you should not watch porn in public. That is wrong. Um, I think there's an interesting question about. I think this is like you shouldn't you shouldn't watch porn in public. Okay, but people used to read the sub. Yeah. Which had page three. Daily Star, Daily Sports. Daily um, Mail. Well, the Daily Mail is more than on, online, but yes. But like, so, um, you know, it, it, no, it, it's one of these ones that's like oh, the, the, the expansion of online porn has so changed or is readily available to people. And I don't think we as a society have actually sat down and said, um, okay, you can watch the, the, the music video on YouTube that has lots and lots and lots of women not wearing very much. That's okay in the same way in a previous generation, reading the sun or the, or the sport would be okay. But in the same way, you weren't allowed to, you know, have your, you know, your scat magazine, uh, no, on full display in um, on the tube. You can't be watching Pornhub on your phone in public. I mean, also the other the other thing to say is the guy was supposed to be working. This was in the chamber of the House of Commons. Oh, this is this is true. I mean, now this is this one of these ones where it's like. It should be common sense, but <clears throat> the reason you have these conversations is so people without common sense knows know what the score is. Um, I don't know about I don't know what your parents are like, but my dad is sixty five, and, and having seen my dad uh, handle technology, I'm just impressed. Neil Parrish knows how to use a mobile yeah. phone's b- browser. It's that, that's that's very true, actually. Although I suppose he doesn't if he was looking for tractors and he ended and up found on board. Born, yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so Neil Parrish 
and that accusations were made that a Tory MP had been caught looking at porn in the Commons chamber. Um, he, 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 he was eventually revealed to be, to be Neil Parrish. Neil Parrish had bizarrely gone on TV as a talking head to say that, no, to kind of almost defend this person without revealing that it was himself, which I don't know whether if that was him lying, if that was not him realising it wasn't him. Um, he, he had the whips. He, had, he was being investigated by the chief whip, which, by the way, both me and Luke have met Chris Eaton-Harris. Yeah. Back when we were conservatives in Nottingham University. And he was an MEP at that time, I think. Yes, he was. I cannot imagine somebody less temperamentally suited <laughs> to be handling this. Well, I don't, no, that's not that's probably going too far. But like, I this he would have been my this first was, this choice. This is going to make him extremely uncomfortable. Yes, um, but, but it shouldn't make anybody extremely yes. uncomfortable. But. Um, so he was then suspended. He had the whip. He had the whip withdrawn. He was going to. He referred himself to parliamentary standards commissioner, and then on Saturday he announced his resignation, with what seemed a pretty heartfelt, distraught uh, interview. Like he he looked like a guy who had blown up his you know, a very good career. Um, in a moment of madness, quote unquote, um, and it's just like, yeah, well, you, ha- you know, he has, and rightly so. Like, I don't, I don't think, you know, it's one of the, it's one of these ones, and I think it, obviously, there's a sexual side which you can come back to in a second, but it does go back to the, um, the Tory staffers having that big party the day before Prince Philip's funeral last year. I'm not a huge monarchist. Um, intellectually, I would get rid of the monarchy, even though, even if I can recognise it has its strengths. But even I was sombre enough to kind of feel the national mourning period. Um... And yet you have people very high up in the Tory party that don't see the day before our longest raven sovereign uh, says goodbye to the, the nation's longest serving royal consort, that maybe it's not time for them to party like wild animals. <laughs> that, that the Tory party doesn't care about about conservatism, doesn't care about these things. And likewise, this Neil Parrish guy, does he not care about the Commons Chamber? Does he not care about the majesty, the, yeah. the somnity of this building where Churchill, Gladstone, Israeli spoke from, where war and peace was debated? Um, it, I, I, we can talk about the sex stuff in a second, but I think it just talks about 
uh, you know, it's it's the old even war quote, isn't it? You know, they never turned they they haven't turned the clock back one minute. You know, this Tory party just doesn't care about the things it pretends to care about. Mm. But yes, Luke, how would you solve sexism in Westminster? Yeah, that's not a conversation I want to have. <coughs> to be honest, I don't think I'm the right person to like contribute to the that conversation. Um, and anyway, I think it's about time we wrap this podcast up. Yes, we, we will return to the broader issues when we have Simon and more information <laughs> and I have a throat. <laughs> but, 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 uh, yeah, but, but as I like, one thing we would say is it, how much do you want to see Lord Frost give up his peerage? <laughs> yeah, I, stands... I, I, I think somebody, if you're a journalist for a national newspaper, are you allowed to just make stuff like that up now? Is that how this works? Because I don't believe a word of that. I, I, I would. I would enjoy it because because like it would make the, the inevitable Lib Dem victory much much funnier. Like Boris Johnson doesn't get the worst end of his friendships or business relationships very often, but he has clearly got the worst end of that of, of like making Frost his protege because that guy has way too high an opinion of himself. Yeah, and also. He just seems to be like a raving libertarian. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. So anyway. I've been Luke Mibbett. He's been Emperor Palpatine. Join us. Join <laughs> us. <laughs> the dark side rises in He's you. He's a many abilities. <laughs> we'll talk to you again in a while. <laughs>